Today we're going to be uh, reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, and also from chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Whoa, that is loud. Well, good morning. I'm just, uh, I'm excited to be here. This is, uh, I'll try not to cry through this sermon. We'll see if that actually happens. I've already been crying in my back office, so um, I'm excited to be here with you guys. We're Going through uh, Matthew, book of Matthew, straight through, and uh, I broke it up a little bit with these passages because uh, I f- thought they worked well together. So I'll give you a little bit of background of where we've been, and uh, then we'll dive into where uh, Mark just read. So we're working our way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew is really just one of four records of Jesus' life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it is a record of his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. And Matthew, uh, the guy who wrote it, uh, he was once, and we'll see, and you, you saw there, uh, best described as a, a money-hungry tax collector. Very greedy, very corrupt. And after he met Jesus, after Jesus called to himself, he became one of the king's greatest teachers, and, and eventually died, martyred for his faith, uh, most likely in Ethiopia. And more than any other gospel writer, so more than Luke and more than Mark and more than John, uh, Matthew endeavored to record what Jesus taught. They all record kind of what Jesus did, but Matthew wanted to be really certain to record everything that Jesus taught. And so 60% of Matthew is just Jesus' direct teaching. So if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to see lots of read of Jesus' teaching in there. And so, excuse me, we spent the last couple months going over his most concentrated kind of chunk of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount that lasts across three chapters, and it has taught us a lot, and it's probably, um, I think in at least the Gospels, probably the best description of the heart of a Christian. Like, what is a Christian, or perhaps better said, what a Christian is, is designed to be and, and what God has called and equipped men to be for those who are in Christ, there it is in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> but, but Matthew didn't just want to portray Jesus as a teacher in his book. He wanted to prove that he was the long-awaited Messiah King that Israel had been waiting for. And so much of his book is devoted to proving that. Now, following, like I said, what was the longest sermon, now beginning in chapter 8, Matthew starts to give an account of some of the miraculous healings that Jesus did. And you heard some of those last week as the beginning of chapter 8. And these proved to demonstrate that he had the power of the king, that he had the authority of the king, that, that he could move mountains, if you will, and He ended up healing, in these examples, a man of leprosy, just with a touch. He healed uh, a Roman centurion servant, just with a word. Uh, He healed Peter's mother-in-law right before she serves them dinner. 
Uh, and then he continues to heal many others, some who are sick and diseased, and others who are demon-possessed. And according to verse 17, the last verse right before where we're at today in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew saw all of this and recorded all of this as a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy, one of them particular out of the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is just a really old book, a prophet that, that has a ton of prophecies about this future king, this future Messiah that would come, and Matthew quotes him. In fact, he says this phrase often in the book of Matthew, this was done to fulfill, this was done to fulfill, and it's always pointing back to some Old Testament, often the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says exactly what Matthew wrote in verse 17 there, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So this is just proving that this is the guy we've been waiting for, this is the guy that heals disease, this is the guy that takes our illnesses. But Matthew wants us to understand something very specific as he starts talking about discipleship. And that is that the same Lord who has authority over nature, the same Lord who has authority over disease, and the same Lord who has authority over whatever dark forces might try and and affect us or inflict us, is the same Lord who has authority over the lives of those who would be called his disciples. So Matthew pauses for a second from what are a bunch of miraculous healings, and he'll return to those to really, for lack of a better phrase, talk about some miraculous followings. In particular, Matthew himself, who writes and records his own conversion. Now, Jesus, we understand, because most people do this, Jesus is not calling people to just admire him. Jesus is not calling people just to respect Him from afar. Man, what a fantastic teacher. What a humble servant. That's not what Jesus is calling people to. Jesus is calling people to follow Him. Following Jesus, though, means living a life like Jesus lived. And we kind of sometimes forget the kind of life that Jesus had, the kind of life that led Him to the cross, the 30 plus years prior to that, that weren't amazingly wonderful in the eyes of the world. It's possible that Matthew was meditating on the verse right before the verse he quoted in Isaiah 53, verse 3. The one about the illnesses is verse 4. And this is what it says about the future king who would come, the future savior who would rescue. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the savior to be expected. So when you think about following Jesus, Living a life like Jesus may not be as flowery as some might imagine. A life like Jesus is different than the crowd for sure, and it's very difficult, but the Bible will tell us it's what we were designed for. It is the life that actually is most glorifying and most joyful. A life like Jesus is much more costly and much more joyful than we often describe it. I think we fall on one or two, or one or the other, too often. We either talk about how costly it is and not how joyful, or how joyful it is and not how costly. It's both. Christianity is harder than we'll admit. Christianity is harder than we'll admit, but it's more rewarding than we could ever imagine. So I want to consider a couple questions as we think about following Jesus. Particularly, what does it actually cost to follow Him? And then, what does it change to follow Him? And lastly, what does it look like? And that's where we get to Matthew himself. In verse 18 it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowd around Him, He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to Him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. I think the first thing to note that's interesting is that Jesus always seems to try and avoid the crowd. He's always trying to get away from the crowd. Yes, occasionally He will preach for lengthy, like the Sermon on the Mount with a crowd, feed the 5,000 and, and help the crowd, but He's always like, okay, the crowd's here, let's go across the lake. Jesus never tried to seek attention. In fact, he, he tried to avoid it a lot of times. He never wanted center stage. He's, he is indifferent to numbers. He was unconcerned with size. He was uninterested in the approval of men. He didn't come to gather a crowd. I would argue that Jesus actually, as Matthew is saying here, came to do even more than just heal the body. He came to redeem disciples. He came to restore and rescue souls. Matthew intentionally, I think, interjects these, these teaching moments inside these amazing miracles, these healings, because he never wants us to forget that Jesus was a teacher and he had a mission. And his mission was to make disciples. And the church is supposed to have the same mission. It's, it's not enough for the church just to be a place of comfort, just to be a place of healing, just to be a place that makes you feel good. The church is called to make disciples as Jesus made disciples. And the truth is, and this is one of my greatest fears, that as a church, we can hold big events. We could actually experience big miracles. We could actually gather big crowds. We could have big successes and absolutely fail to do what we're supposed to do. Jesus looks past what I think is the impersonal crowd and He starts to talk to individuals. And it's just awesome. So one individual steps up first out of the crowd. An individual scribe. And a scribe, those, these were the teachers and, and somewhat the interpreters of, of the law. They were referred to as lawyers by Luke. The scribes were kind of charged with the responsibility to rightly interpret the law. And so that's why the scribes were the ones who were often criticizing Jesus they were the ones that came with some of the most critical accusations based off the law and how he was not being law-abiding. And in ancient times, the scribes were kind of the king's right-hand men. They were their secretaries. And so they had a, they had a position. They had some status. They had, had some regard by society. So this scribe, you have to think about him, he is very educated. In all sense of the word, he is very skilled. He is very respected. He is very religious. This is the kind of man that, by all appearances, we would go, Well, there's a follower. That guy, you know, check it off. He's moral. He's like a Bible thump and a wanna stud. I mean, he knows everything, right? That must be a guy that Jesus would choose. He seems to qualify. But when this man proudly announces, and I do think there's some pride in it, like, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Lucky you. Jesus really does very little to affirm him. Having seen the crowds, this guy, think about him, he's seen these crowds going, whoa, this guy's, this guy's got some momentum here. He's seen the enthusiasm of people getting excited about Jesus. It's, he's seeing the miracles. It's clear, I think, that, that this man from the crowd is only thinking about what following Jesus might gain for himself. He already has a lot. This will take him to the next level. He doesn't understand what following costs. There's no clue what following Jesus costs. He doesn't approach Jesus as Lord, He approaches Jesus as a means for Him to become a Lord Himself. A right-hand man to the guy who is the man. In other words, the man doesn't think Jesus is great as much as he loves the greatness he believes he will get by identifying with Him. He wants to be part of the entourage. Be part of the in-crowd. He has no idea that following Jesus leads to the cross. 
So the cost of following Jesus is something that's very difficult for all of us, and that is complete surrender. Complete surrender. And the benefits of following Jesus include, ready? Self-denial. What? Sacrifice. Service. Suffering. There's the job description. There are the benefits you get for signing up. And Jesus is going to communicate to this, this guy that, look, I'm not the normal king. I'm not a king building some court for this world. He calls himself the Son of Man. And that's a king without an earthly castle. The Son of Man is a phrase that comes from another Old Testament prophet, Daniel. Remember remember Daniel from the guy who's in the lion's den? He was raised in Babylon, becomes a very good Babylonian, but still worships the one true God. And he receives all kinds of visions, and one of them is the vision of whom he calls the Son of Man, which is really a vision of Jesus, the King, who will have a dominion and a reign that will be everlasting forever. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's a kingdom that earthly kingdoms can't compare with. And so, by Jesus even using this phrase like, dude, I'm a different kind of king. There's no court for you to be my right-hand man and be the scribe and you can do everything you want. The kingdom of God is not like an earthly kingdom. And so the mission of the king is going to look very different. So Jesus says, I don't have a home. The mission doesn't have a home. And you go, well, what does that even mean? Well, here's some of the things I think it means as I broke it down. Thinking about Jesus not having a home. The mission of Jesus, if you will, is not localized in one place. It's not about buildings like you would have, well, there's the castle, there's the king, there's where everything happens. It's not localized about buildings. It's not about numbers. It's not about dollars. In fact, if you would measure Jesus' success as a king according to earthly measures, He failed everything. He didn't build wealth. He didn't build buildings. He didn't build crowds. In fact, the moment he died, everyone abandoned him except his best friend and his mom. Mom will always be there, right? But the mission isn't localized on one place. And if it doesn't have an home, I mean, the mission never actually has an end. It's constantly moving. It's constantly organic. It's, there's no retirement from mission. Well, I'm home now. Time to rest. No. There's no home. There's only go. There's a sense as we follow Jesus that we will never, ever, ever cease to ask, what now, Jesus? What would you like me to do with this, Jesus? How should I respond to this, Jesus? It's constant. It's moving. But perhaps more than anything, the mission has a cost. Jesus was literally homeless. He was very dependent upon the mercy of others who would give to Him as He ministered for a few years. And so what that teaches us is this, is that Christianity and following Jesus is, among other things, a bit unpredictable, a bit uncomfortable, and a bit uncertain. Like when you have a home, like the security that a home brings, the, the comfort that having a home brings, right? You know, when you get home after you've been away for a while, like, okay, I'm home. You kind of like throw your clothes off, some of us do, and you get like, you know, something to drink, and like, ah, I can relax, I don't have to worry. Jesus says, in some sense, the mission has a cost of those things, that your security and your comfort and your certainty on this earth is up for grabs. And the reason why is because no matter where we might put a tree down, no matter where we actually have a house, this is never, ever, ever our home. This is not our home. And the minute you forget that this is not our home is when you begin to rest in this place as your Our rest is with Jesus. Our home is with Him. 
And he is either going to return and get us, or we're going to return to him, but the bottom line is this is not our home. For the scribe, following Jesus is not going to get him whatever he's looking for, whether it be status or influence, whatever he happens to want. Following Jesus gets you one thing. Here's the big reveal. Jesus. Following Jesus gets you Jesus. And that has to be enough. That has to be enough. You have to find those who follow Christ have to find Him more satisfying than any success you might accomplish, any regard you might receive, or any comfort you might experience. There is no cost too great to get Jesus. That's the cost. And the scribe hears that, and who knows if he followed or didn't. i kind of inclined to believe he didn't. But what does it change to follow Him? And a second disciple steps up, in verse 21, he says, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's cold. Anyway, you read that, you're like, I never thought Jesus talked like that. Let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. Whoa, okay, Jesus. I mean, that's, that's direct. After Jesus speaks, I think, on the reality of what following Him really costs another disciple, and Matthew makes a point to call Him a disciple. On the surface, I think He he appears to ask a pretty harmless question. But if we take Jesus' somewhat cold response, that reveals there's something else going on there. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't slip with words. Oops! The fact that he scolds a disciple a little bit about the true nature of discipleship sobers us to the reality of this, right? He's talking to a disciple about discipleship, and that's this, that I believe disciples can drift. Disciples can drift from following Jesus. By drift, I mean that disciples, those who have trusted Jesus, begin to compromise and make something more important than Him. I mean, the truth is, anytime we sin, we do that in a moment, but there are many of us who begin to drift even further and longer. I read a recent blog where a, a pastor named uh, Jeremy Treat, probably an awesome quote, he said, a decision for Christ apart from devotion to Christ is more about fleeting emotions than lifelong commitment. That's what really sin is. It's building your life on something other than Jesus. Making something a Savior other than Jesus. Now, this guy seems to be choosing something that's pretty good. Like I said, on the surface it seems like, well, that's, that's kind of harmless. That's kind of like, man, I can respect that. You want to go bury your dad. But he doesn't ask I like to like, what doesn't he ask? He doesn't ask, well, let me go home for a moment. He doesn't say, you know what, let me, let me just uh, go home when dad dies. He has to go home, and he uses this phrase, first. Let me go home first. Jesus is concerned about firstness. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going with it. Okay? Firstness. The disciple has lost the firstness of Jesus. Jesus wants to be first. And was it not Jesus who in the Sermon on the Mount said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So consider for a second that this guy's dad's probably still alive. So in essence, he's actually saying something like, well, let me wait for my dad to die before I follow you. Or, said differently, and maybe more in line with maybe something we've said, you know, Jesus, someday I'll follow you. Or, I'll be ready to follow you, Jesus, when... Or, before I follow you, Jesus, I must 
fill in the blank, build my career, experience this pleasure, build this family, then I'll start following you, Jesus, but let me do this first. Jesus knew for this man that if he didn't follow him in that moment, he would never follow him because his first concern wasn't Jesus. It was, it was his family. And many of us would go, well, families, that's, that's a good thing, right? Not when it comes before Jesus. In fact, the best thing for your family is to put Jesus first. The best thing for your marriage is to put Jesus first. The best thing for your job is to put Jesus first. The best thing for your church is to put Jesus first. We think backwards. We think we can produce happiness by turning away from Jesus. That was the whole problem in the Garden of Eden. Jesus wants to be first, and sin is ultimately making something good into something ultimate. A position reserved for Jesus. We could talk about the bad things of sin, but why don't we talk about the good things that we make into supreme things? Let me give you a really shocking verse that Jesus said that will just knock your socks off. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And if you fast forward, I believe verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whoa! Hate your dad and mom and kids? I don't believe Jesus wants us to hate in the sense that we believe expect us to hate our parents. It wasn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that said hating's like murder. So we can't possibly mean that. And so I would argue that in comparison to the devotion and the love we have for Jesus, it will look like hatred. It won't be hatred. But in comparison to the love and the devotion and the firstness of Christ, everything else will pale. We have lots of first concerns. It's no different. Family's no different than making your first concern your lifestyle, your job, your dreams, some person, some position, some pleasure, where that becomes first. And Jesus becomes second, third, fourth, fifth. There are many awesome seconds. Family is an awesome second. Marriage is an awesome second. Working, gift of the Lord, awesome second. Money, when in the right place, awesome second. Never first. Never first. And that is Jesus' greatest concern. Every would-be disciple has to count the cost of following Jesus by asking a few simple questions. And these questions change everything. Your answers to these questions change everything. Dr. David Platt, I think, said him best. He said, do you believe that Jesus is worth abandoning everything for? Do you and I really believe that Jesus is so good so satisfying, so rewarding that we will leave all we have, all we own, all we are in order to find our fullness in Him? Do you and I believe in Him enough to obey Him and follow Him wherever He leads? For those who are called by Jesus, the answers are yes, yes, yes. And the world will look at that and go, psycho! Not realizing that is the best decision for my family, the best decision for my marriage, the best decision for every other decision I have to make to put Jesus first, to find Him most supreme, to find Him most valuable, to find Him most worthy. So we get to our last question, where we see it played out in the life of Matthew. 
You see what discipleship costs and what it changes, which is really everything and every relationship I have and every, every desire I have and every plan I have. But we see what it looks like in Matthew. And the answer of what does it look like to follow Him may surprise you a little bit. Because I think some of us have some really, and I'll use it pejoratively, like negatively, uh, religious definitions of what following Jesus looks like. And I think Matthew simplifies it for us. In chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, Mark read that. Matthew records his own conversion of when he became a follower of Jesus. So he has a contrast to the, we'll call him the hasty scribe. And then the hesitant son, right? These two guys that one's super excited and one's not so much. And you have Matthew and his response of what it really means to follow Jesus, what it looks like when Jesus calls. It says this in verse 9 of chapter 9, As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, Follow Me. And He rose and He followed Him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and if you look in the Gospel of Luke, you would see it's Matthew's house. As Jesus reclined at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call righteous, but sinners. Do not ever forget, Jesus did not come for righteous, clean people. He came for the screwed up, broken ones like us. Not those dirty ones, these dirty ones. So a couple things we see it, what it looks like to follow Jesus. The very first thing is following Jesus means giving your life to Jesus. So look at Matthew, right? I love that we see that we don't call upon Jesus. He calls upon us. You have these two disciples coming to Jesus who pretty much get like put down and then Jesus goes and finds Matthew who's not even looking for him. In calling a guy like Matthew... We see that Jesus doesn't typically call disciples from the crowd. Those that we expect. He doesn't necessarily seek out the popular, though certainly He does save some of the popular. But He doesn't seek out those that we would deem popular, those that that would seem educated or righteous or clean, or even, as I said, those looking for Him. He doesn't go with the scribe. The guy that has the, the pedigree. The guy that has the resume. The guy that has the Bible memorized. He doesn't call the man who claims to be a disciple, but actually still loves the world. He calls the dirty man with the broken past to him. And we don't have a sense, we think of like tax collectors like IRS agents. Well, think of an IRS agent who's like a mass murderer, like just a horrible guy, like terrible. Tax collectors were a whole different level of ugliness in this culture. Now, Matthew is a, is a rather obscure disciple. We don't know much about him. We only know really a lot about Peter and John and Judas. I mean, Matthew appears in lists and then in a section like this. But what we do know is that Matthew, before he followed Jesus, as I said, he was a tax collector, better known as a professional extortionist. And I won't go into detail how they... How they basically made bids for for areas and they would pay off Rome and then Rome would support them. And He was just an extortionist. It was a financial benefit to being a tax collector. And the Jews considered tax collectors the example of a sinner. Like, they often, like when they're talking about sinners, like, oh, you're going to go hang out with tax collectors? Like, that was like the child molesters, the prostitutes, whatever it is you think is most horrible in your life. There you go, tax collectors. In fact, the Romans also viewed them as basically no better than brothel keepers. 
Horrible. This is the guy Jesus calls. And as a tax collector, Matthew would have been despised by everyone because he would extort people for money and any more that he could take than was actually owed just went in his pocket. So he was what in our culture would be the 1% who actually did rob from the 99 for himself. Man was hated. But what happened? Jesus called him by name. Never named the scribe. Never names this other disciple. But Matthew has a name. He says, Matthew, come follow me. And in a moment, Matthew is changed from a minion of an evil king to what will become a martyr to the one true king. Matthew was reborn. Matthew's job as a tax collector left him very educated, very wealthy, very organized, very well connected. And guess what? Jesus intended to use every part of him. It wasn't an accident that he became a tax collector. It didn't surprise... Oh, look what Matthew chose to do for a living, right? It didn't surprise God. God employed every aspect of it. And guess what? Matthew never wanted anyone to forget he was a tax collector. In chapter 10, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, where he gives a list of the disciples, he is the only Gospel author. Okay, so there's three others, four Gospels, three others. When he lists out the disciples, he is the only one who includes Matthew the tax collector. Now why would that be? He wants us to remember what Jesus did. He's not going to hide from his sin. He's not going to hide from his past because declaring it, oh yeah, I was a tax collector. Look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. If he can take a tax collector and transform him to a son of the king, he could do it to anybody. Look how he took a tax collector and turned him into a soul collector the same way he took fishermen and made them into fishers of men. So, his whole life becomes Jesus's. He gives him his whole life. And what we see, what that looks like in the second aspect of he begins to invite Jesus into his home. So, Matthew hears Jesus. He's called to be saved. He gets up. He leaves everything. What does he leave? He leaves behind wealth. He leaves behind position. He leaves behind power. He leaves behind security. He leaves behind a home. In a moment, he believed that Jesus was so good, was so satisfying, was so rewarding that he left all he had, all he owned, all he was to find his fullness in him. But he did more than just abandon all those things. Because even though Jesus didn't have a home, Matthew did. And as I said, there was Matthew's home who he invited him into. He didn't wait for Jesus to take him on mission to Honduras. He didn't wait for Jesus to take him uh, to a Bible study. What's the first thing he did? Come home with me. Come into the place where I typically would hide away from the world. Where I would shutter my windows and close my door so you couldn't see my sin and come in and light my home with your presence. You know what salvation really is? It's the freedom to be in the presence of God. And to want to enjoy that presence of God wherever you are. And so Matthew invites him into the center of his life, into his home, to dwell with Jesus immediately. He began his service, his mission, where he was at. This is, I believe, where all true disciples begin to follow Jesus. They follow Him home. Not to Jesus' home, into our ours into our own. And I think sometimes this is the hardest place to actually live out Jesus. To let Him govern our home. To let Him govern the real, true aspects of our life that no one sees because they're in our home. 
Matthew wanted Jesus to be everywhere, in everything, with him always. Following Jesus wherever he goes means being with Jesus wherever you go. And the goal of salvation is not fire insurance, though that's a nice benefit. It is being in the presence of God. But the last thing, which is, I think, really incredible. Following Jesus means giving your life. Following Jesus means inviting you to your home. And following Jesus means introducing Jesus in all of your relationships. Right? The one disciple is worried about leaving Jesus to go make sure this relationship was okay. And what does Matthew do? He brings all his relationships to Jesus. So he does more than just throw, which he does do, a big expensive party for Jesus. Notice what he did? He invited every sinner he knows to attend. And who did he know? Tax collectors! Right? He knew all the tax collectors. So what did he do? Hey guys, I'm throwing a big party, which is probably pretty common. But it was going to be an entirely different party. He invites all of his sinful, broken, slime ball, the culture hates friends, into his home, and Jesus goes and celebrates with them. Having believed, having believed in Jesus, having received life from Jesus, having seen him as the king he's been waiting for, he wants nothing more than for everyone he knows to believe. You gotta meet Jesus. You gotta know Jesus. Come spend time with Jesus. I'm going to hang with Jesus. Come with me. Whatever happened to that excitement? You know where you see that excitement in new believers. For those who were saved at one point, you used to have that excitement, and I would argue that maybe you don't have it now, that maybe it's waned a little bit. And why is that? There's got to be a joy about wanting to spend time with Jesus, but more than that, a joy to wanting to share Jesus, to let people experience your home that is governed by Jesus. My sister-in-law was saved this past week, and there's an infection in a positive way of faith that is just beautiful and convicting at the same time. Beautiful because... I hear her say things like, I just want this light to shine out. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really biblical. Why haven't I said that lately? And getting inspired and convicted at the same time is a pretty awesome thing. Wow, I suck. Jesus rocks. That's kind of how it goes. Okay? God is still moving, God is still acting, God is still changing. And we cannot forget that. There's a joy in that. There's an excitement in that. There is power in that. I remember when I started dating Kaylin, and I wanted to introduce her to everybody, right? When I get married, that's my wife. My wife. What about Jesus? This is my Lord. This is my Savior. This is my King. Kaylin never died for me. Jesus did. Where's the joy in that? Matthew's got joy. He's a disciple already trying to make disciples. And he doesn't even do the work. He's like, um, just come see Jesus. Right? He's not trying to give them some you know, five-step plan to discipleship. He's like, How? what happened? I don't know. He told me to follow him and I love him. That's all I know. Come see him. He doesn't launch on a big search to find people. I've got to find people who need to be saved. You know plenty of people. He's like, I'll just invite Jethro, that slime ball down the street, and I'll invite this guy and this guy, and they all come together in the relationships he already has. And while everyone is confused why Jesus would ever choose a tax collector to be his disciple, Jesus declares, these are the only kind of people I save. And this is why. All of Matthew's experiences, all of his education, all of his rebellion, all of his extortion, all of his years devoted to building his own kingdom were designed by God to one day build His. And what are we doing? 
We're reading and studying a gospel, a book written by a slimeball tax collector turned martyr for Jesus. So just to close it out, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means receiving the free gift of salvation that comes by trusting and believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, in your place. Not just as an example, but as your substitute. Died the death that you deserve. And then rose from the dead to give you new life. You believe, you confess, and you're saved. It means becoming a son of the King and becoming a servant of the King. And as we saw Matthew become an ambassador for the King. You ever wonder why Matthew ever became a tax collector? Why was he trying to find his life through extortion? Here's why. He believed that money and power would fill his heart and give him identity. That it would allow him to believe and say that I'm worth it. Or that I'm worthy. Only Jesus is worth it. And only Jesus is the one who can make us worthy. Until you see Jesus as supremely worthy, you will not follow Him. Until you see Jesus' sacrifice as supremely worthy, you will not follow Him. Until you see Jesus' resurrection as supremely worthy, you will not follow Him. He will always be second to what you value most. Whether that's a position, or that's a person, or that's a pleasure. You will not find Him until you understand, or find Him worthy until you understand the cross. That Jesus left His home to dwell with us in ours. That Jesus abandoned infinite wealth and infinite power and infinite comfort to make us His treasure. That Jesus entered into our brokenness and willingly died in order to make us worthy. Jesus' commitment to me cost Him everything. Shouldn't my commitment to Him cost me something? Jesus wants you to give Him more than just your eternal life. And I fear that a lot of you old, stuffy Christians... And I put myself in that same boat, are really comfortable giving them your eternal life. You can have my eternal life, Jesus, but let me just tell you this Jesus wants more than your eternal life. He wants every wonderful, horrible, boring, exciting part of your earthly life. He wants it all. He wants more than just a decision, He wants Every single decision you ever make. And I pray you will believe that that kind of following will be not only for His glory, but for your joy and the joy of your spouse and the joy of your family and the joy of your friends and the joy of your employer and the joy of your home and the joy of everything. Jesus didn't give commands because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy, he gave commands that our joy might be made complete. And so we are going to celebrate today. We are going to have, um, we're going to sing a couple songs. And during that time, I'd invite you to go get your kids. Let them see what's going to happen. And we will sing a couple songs. You will get communion elements, which really is for us a reminder of our own baptism. The cup is the blood that is shed for us. The body is Jesus' body that was broken for us. And we celebrate and lift it up to remember where our identity comes from. We don't fall into despair when we have a bad week. We fall flat on our face. And we don't come in here rocking like, zippity doo dah, Jesus, I rocked it this week. Because we know the only reason we rocked it is because Jesus Christ died for us. So what's Jesus coming out of you? But we're going to baptize and we're going to celebrate those who have internally been changed. Who have become the sons and daughters of the King. Who have devoted themselves and wanting to be the servants of the King. And now, publicly, wanting to be ambassadors for the King. To say, look what Jesus has done.
That's all we need to say. Look what Jesus did. I'm going to close us with a passage out of 2 Corinthians, my favorite passage. I think it describes not only Matthew, it describes anyone who has come to faith, it describes the people who will be baptized today, and describes, I pray, many people will come to faith because of you all telling people about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, From now on, think of being called by Jesus and everything changes. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. And so I implore you, for those who are not in Christ, that you will be reconciled with your Lord today. That you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. And I will pray with you and we will rejoice with you. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are mighty. Mighty to save. You are the Lord of salvation. You are the One, Father, who sent Your Son to enter into our brokenness, to abandon His home, to relinquish His his wealth and His power and His position so that we might be made worthy through His sacrifice. Forgive us for our faithfulness, faithlessness, Father. Forgive us for our unbelief. Help us to remember that You are the One who takes those hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh, beating, Father, for You. Who creates in us a hunger that was not there before. Who takes those who were dead and makes alive. Those who were blind and causes us to see. You are the One who does this, Lord, not us. You are the One who calls us, Lord, not us. You are the One who protects us, Lord. You are the One who provides for us, Lord. You are the One who loves us, Lord. Thank You for all that You have done. And I pray today we will be encouraged and inspired by Your ability to take that which is lost and find it. That we will be encouraged to remember that You are the One that chases off after that one sheep that wanders away. That You know where they are. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have friends and family who do not know You, that we'll be moved to pray for them. And that, Father, You will transform them and You will call them back to Yourself. Thank You for being so faithful, Father. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. You are awesome. In the name of Jesus we pray, Amen.